Welcome to the June 16th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we discuss new data demonstrating that, in older patients with AML, post-transplant relapse risk is driven by clinical and molecular features present at diagnosis, but not remission MRD. We'll also explore two studies that characterize a novel high-risk BALL subtype, defined by two unique genomic alterations that includes a deletion resulting in enhancer hijacking that deregulates expression of the CDX2 homeobox transcription factor. Finally, we'll review results of a large single-arm phase 2 trial providing encouraging clinical evidence for the use of ruxolitinib as a frontline treatment for pediatric hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Let's start with the article entitled, Impact of Diagnostic Genetics on Remission MRD and Transplantation Outcomes in Older AML Patients by H. Moses Murdoch of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, and co-authors. Older patients with AML have a high relapse risk and poor survival despite allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. Choice of transplant conditioning regimen may partly account for these poor outcomes. While younger adults typically receive myeloablative conditioning, older patients may receive less intensive regimens due to risk of treatment-related toxicity. Poor outcomes in older patients may also be driven by enrichment of high-risk biological features. Thus, there is interest in using genomic assessment to identify subgroups with higher risk of poor transplant outcomes. Previously, researchers reported outcomes among younger adults with AML in a randomized Phase three trial. Patients randomly assigned to reduced-intensity conditioning had an increased relapse rate and decreased overall survival, compared to patients receiving myeloablative conditioning if there was no evidence of MRD, defined as detectable AML mutations at the time of complete remission. However, the study excluded patients over 65 years of age, and all patients also had to be eligible for myeloablative conditioning. Murdoch and colleagues therefore assessed determinants of post-transplant outcomes in a real-world cohort of AML patients 60 years or older who underwent allogeneic transplantation in first remission at one of six participating centers. 295 patients were included, and of these, 267 patients underwent reduced-intensity conditioning. Investigators performed targeted mutational analysis on 295 individual patient bone marrow or peripheral blood samples banked prior to induction chemotherapy. They also performed targeted duplex sequencing on 192 individual patient samples collected in first remission but prior to transplant. About 61% of patients were considered MRD positive based on mutations prior to treatment that were persistent in the pre-transplant sample. This excluded sole persisting DNMT3A or TET2 mutations, which are reported to have no impact on relapse risk. In baseline samples, clinical factors that independently influenced risk of or relapse or death after transplant included adverse cytogenetics, secondary AML, complete remission without hematologic recovery, and HCTCI score for comorbidities. Mutated genes associated with inferior leukemia-free survival, or LFS, included TP53, JAK2, KRAS, and FLT3 internal tandem duplication without concomitant NPM1 mutation. 
In a multivariable model for leukemia-free survival incorporating those baseline clinical and molecular factors, four risk groups were defined, ranging from low risk with a three-year LFS of 85% to very high risk with a three-year LFS of 7%. In univariable analysis, MRD positivity was associated with increased relapse and inferior LFS compared with MRD negativity. However, in a multivariable model incorporating baseline risk, MRD positivity had no independent impact on leukemia-free survival. Investigators conclude that transplant outcomes in older AML patients in first remission are primarily determined by clinical and molecular characteristics present at diagnosis. Molecular MRD in older AML patients is associated with high-risk baseline features and does not affect survival post-transplant independent of baseline risk. In a commentary, Sylvie D. Freeman of the University of Birmingham in the UK and Peter Valk of University Medical Center Rotterdam, the Netherlands, said this study advances understanding of treatment-related clonal dynamics in AML. In older adults, mutated genes with relative chemoresistance include many with relapse-initiating potential that is indeterminate, which blunts the prognostic value of simply measuring persistent or emergent mutations of MRD. To identify a useful prognostic MRD molecular signature for older AML using next-generation sequencing, they said, there is much mutational chaff to be separated from the wheat. Other strategies may be more promising, including a targeted sequencing approach for MRD being developed for Intercept, a Phase 1-2 AML trial of the Australasian Leukemia and Lymphoma Group. In summary, the study by Murdoch and colleagues suggests that molecular persistence in remission is frequent in older adults and does not retain prognostic value for post-transplant outcomes after adjusting for specific baseline molecular and clinical variables. Thus, attempts to eradicate persistent AML mutations in older patients by intensifying transplant preparative regimens may be counterproductive due to their high risk of treatment-related toxicity. These findings may provide a framework for developing risk-adapted strategies in older AML transplant candidates. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. Next, let's review a pair of research articles that define a novel B-cell ALL subtype that is associated with high-risk features and has been found predominantly in young women. One of the articles, from Marie Passé of the University of Paris and co-authors, is entitled Concurrent CDX2 Cis Deregulation and UBTF ATXN7L3 Fusion Defined a Novel High-Risk Subtype of B-Cell ALL. The other, by Shinsuke Kumura of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and colleagues, is entitled Enhancer Retargeting of CDX2 and UBTF ATXN7L3 Define a Subtype of High-Risk B-Progenitor Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia. B-Progenitor Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia, or BALL, encompasses many genetic entities caused by different somatically acquired genetic alterations that have important biological and clinical implications. A minority of cases, 5 to 8 percent by various estimates, have historically lacked an identified genomic driver despite careful analysis and are commonly termed B-other. Two studies appearing in this issue of blood describe a new subtype of BALL, dubbed CDX2-UBTF-ALL 
which is the latest member of the B. other ALL subgroup, where specific genetic changes have now been identified. This new subtype is characterized by two separate genomic lesions, one that precipitates enhancer retargeting and upregulation of the CDX2 gene at chromosome 13, and the second lesion leads to formation of a UBTF fusion at chromosome 17. To discover this new subtype, both groups of investigators utilized integrated whole genome and whole transcriptome sequencing, along with other techniques, to look for previously unrecognized genomic drivers in BALL. As a starting point, the two teams independently identified a subtype characterized by a distinct gene expression profile. Kimura and colleagues analyzed data for nearly 3,400 BALL cases, spanning different age groups and centers. They identified this transcriptional signature in 22 patients, or 0.6% of all cases. Passe and colleagues looked specifically at B other cases from several prospective clinical trials in adult BALL, identifying the profile in 23 patients, or 2.4% of the cases analyzed. Both teams showed that these cases were all marked by two separate underlying genetic features. One was a focal 10-kilobased deletion at chromosome band 17q21, resulting in a chimeric fusion of the gene UBTF, which stands for upstream binding transcription factor, and the downstream gene ATXN7L3, which stands for ataxin 7 like 3. It is currently unknown if the fusion itself is an oncogenic driver or if it results in deregulation of these two genes or other nearby genes. Interestingly, UBTF tandem duplications have been previously described as recurrent genetic mutations in AML, and UBTF is a main downstream target of MYC. The other lesion was a focal deletion at 13Q12 that resulted in ectopic regulation of CDX2, which stands for caudal-type homeobox 2. Inappropriate reactivation of CDX2 has been widely observed in leukemias, and an oncogenic role has been proposed. However, mechanisms of ectopic deregulation have remained unknown. Both FLT3, a well-known player in the pathogenesis of acute leukemias, and PAN3, whose enhancer is ubiquitously active in hematopoietic and immune cell types, reside at 13Q12. Evidence from these investigations points to an aberrant chromatin looping configuration caused by the 13Q12 deletion. As a result, an active enhancer of the PAN3 gene is juxtaposed with the CDX2 gene, located 280 kilobases away, which activates expression of CDX2. This mechanism is known as enhancer retargeting, or enhancer hijacking, and has been implicated in ALL and other disorders in an increasing number of recent studies. Additional evidence suggests that deletions involving the CDX2 FLT3 PAN3 locus result from RAG-mediated inappropriate recombination events, which are commonly seen in ALL and require a locus to be in an open chromatin state. From the clinical standpoint, patients with the UBTF CDX2 ALL subtype were predominantly young adults, and about three-fourths were female. The median age was 35 years in the study by Kimura et al. and 31 years in the study by Passe et al. Both studies point to poor risk features associated with this rare subtype, including higher risk of failure of the first induction course, higher post-induction levels of MRD, and a higher incidence of relapse, which suggests that novel therapeutic approaches will be required.
Of note, a recent article in Blood by Yasuda and colleagues also reported a CDX2 expressing BALL subtype with poor risk features in approximately 3% of their cohort, whose age ranged from 15 to 64 years. But they did not study the underlying cause of ectopic CDX2 activation. In an accompanying commentary, Toas Fioretos of Lund University in Sweden said that, collectively, this work identifies a new and clinically relevant subtype of BALL. While Kimura and colleagues concluded that ectopic expression of CDX2 is likely the first event based on variant allele frequencies, Fioretos notes that given the simultaneous presence of the UBTF fusion in all cases, the two genetic changes are likely to cooperate by as yet unknown mechanisms. Fioretto said that CDX2 UBTF ALL could be suspected based on its immunophenotype, as most cases were negative for CD10 and CD20, while positive for CD34, CD38, and IgM. However, in order to detect CDX2 UBTF and other recently described genetic alterations in BALL, combined whole genome and whole transcriptome sequencing is required. Fioretto's comments that those methods should become the, quote, new gold standard, unquote, in the diagnostic workup of patients with BALL. Taken together, findings of the present studies provide important new insights into the pathogenesis of BALL. Hopefully, Fioretto said, the current work will inspire future studies looking at enhancer retargeting as a mechanism underlying the development of leukemias. The final research article, entitled A Study of Ruxolitinib Response-Based Stratified Treatment for Pediatric Hemophagocytic Lymphohistiocytosis, is from King Zhang and colleagues at Beijing Children's Hospital and the National Center for Children's Health in Beijing, China. In this Phase two study, Zhang and co-authors demonstrate that a frontline treatment strategy incorporating ruxolitinib was well-tolerated and rapidly effective in children with newly diagnosed HLH, with a 12-month overall survival exceeding 86%. HLH is a life-threatening systemic inflammatory syndrome, characterized by hyperinflammation resulting from an unrestrained T-cell activation and marketedly elevated inflammatory cytokines. This leads to tissue damage and multi-organ failure. Primary or familial HLH results from inherited defects in lymphocyte cytotoxicity whereas secondary HLH is triggered by infection, rheumatologic disease, or cancer. Etoposide-based regimens, widely accepted as standard treatment for HLH, have led to substantial improvements in survival. However, many patients are refractory to treatment, while others are unable to tolerate intensive chemotherapy or are not candidates for treatment due to complicated clinical scenarios. Novel therapies that target key cytokines have demonstrated promise both in patients and in mouse models of primary and secondary HLH. One especially promising option under study is ruxolitinib, an inhibitor of Janus kinase 1 and 2. Ruxolitinib inhibits signaling of interferon gamma, IL-6, and other pro-inflammatory cytokines through its inhibition of the JAK-STAT pathway. A number of ruxolitinib clinical trials are ongoing in patients with HLH, though most have focused on its use as a salvage therapy in adults. By contrast, the present single-arm perspective study by Zhang and colleagues evaluates ruxolitinib as a frontline therapy in children with HLH, followed by additional treatment based on initial response. The study included 52 children who fulfilled standard diagnostic criteria for HLH. 
The median age was 3.7 years, and the median time from onset to HLH diagnosis was 19 days. None had received prior chemotherapy, though about one-third were receiving corticosteroids at the time of screening. Patients with cancer or with severe CNS disease or other organ dysfunction were excluded. Underlying diseases included 24 cases of acute EBV, 10 cases of chronic active EBV, 11 cases of systemic autoinflammatory disorder, and 7 with unknown etiology. Whole exome sequencing was performed on all enrolled patients and their parents, but only 4 patients with EBV-associated HLH had pathogenic gene mutations associated with primary HLH. Initial treatment included oral ruxolitinib monotherapy dosed according to body weight. Patients with a favorable response remained on therapy for a total of four weeks. Chemotherapy was added for eight weeks in patients with unfavorable responses, which were defined as no response after three days of ruxolitinib treatment, disease improvement without partial response, or disease progression. The primary endpoint of this study was the overall response rate at the end of frontline ruxolitinib monotherapy, which was approximately 69%, including complete response in 42%. The median time to first response was 2 days, while the median time to complete response was 21 days, with a range of 14 to 28 days. HLH associated with acute EBV infection was the most sensitive to ruxolitinib. 30 of the 52 patients in the study, or about 58%, received additional treatment with chemotherapy due to unsatisfactory responses to ruxolitinib alone, and of these, 53% achieved complete response. The remaining patients, refractory by week 8, were predominantly those with chronic EBV infection. Altogether, at the end of the 8-week treatment period, the complete response rate for the overall study population was 73%, or 38 of the 52 enrolled patients. The 12-month overall survival for all patients was 86.4%. Ruxolitinib monotherapy was well-tolerated, and most adverse events were grade 1 or 2 in severity. Adverse events were more frequent in the additional treatment group and included grade 3 or higher myelosuppression in 37% and severe infection in 23%, among others. In a commentary, Lauren A. Henderson and Barbara A. Deeger of Boston Children's Hospital said these findings represent a, quote, major step forward in updating the approach to this life-threatening disease. They said the study, the largest ever prospective study demonstrating a clinical benefit of targeted therapy in pediatric HLH, provides strong support for using ruxolitinib as initial treatment. Ruxolitinib monotherapy provided rapid responses, avoiding toxic chemotherapy in many patients. Although these findings should advance pediatric practice, Henderson and Deeger note that the current study was conducted at a single center and the majority of enrolled patients were diagnosed with secondary HLH. Thus, more work needs to be done, including confirming the findings in other practice settings, defining the optimal dose of ruxolitinib, and identifying the patient populations most likely to benefit from ruxolitinib. And it will be important to launch comparative studies to determine the next best treatment after ruxolitinib fails, whether that be chemotherapy, immunosuppressive therapy, or another targeted treatment. Nevertheless, the current findings inspired optimism in the commentary authors, who concluded, quote, although there is still much to learn, we are getting smarter. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, 
please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.